Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with Rabbi Mark Glickman, the author of a fascinating new book entitled Stolen Words, the Nazi Plunder of Jewish Books. It tells what has until now been a largely unknown chapter of Jewish history. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Aaron. It's very good to be here. So tell me, how did a uh, congregational rabbi come to write such a book? Well, I'm something of a Jewish book collector, you might say a Jewish book nerd, <laughs> and I, I ordered a book online, must have been eight or ten years ago, that I saw was an old book that looked big and interesting and like one that I could afford. It was a volume of Hilchot Al-Fasi, uh, originally right. an 11th century Jewish legal tome. Uh, this volume was published in the 1760s, and when I got the book, I opened it up and I found that on the inside front cover there was a book plate, a, a sticker that said Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. Hmm. And I didn't know what Jewish Cultural Reconstruction was, so of course I did what every rabbi has done through history when facing such a mystery. I googled it. And, <laughs> uh, I and, I, and I found that Jewish, I learned that Jewish Cultural Reconstruction was an organization that was set up after the war in order to um, figure out what to do with the, the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Jewish books that the Nazis had looted during their regime that had remained unidentifiable during the war. Mm-hmm. I had known, like many people, that the Nazis had burned a lot of books, but I, I didn't know that they saved them, certainly not that, that they saved them in any great numbers. So, and that, yeah. that's what set me off on this story. Fantastic. Well, you know, I think we're all familiar with those images of Nazis standing around bonfires while books are burning in Berlin and elsewhere. And those are back in 1933, I think. But very few of us know of the Nazis' massive effort to save, you know, Jewish books. So how did it happen that a regime that was ultimately intent on the murder of every last Jew of Europe eventually left the bonfires behind and decided instead to stockpile every Jewish book they could find? Right. Well, that's a very good question. The bonfires, it turns out, this I learned to my surprise, the vast majority of them happened within a period of about three weeks in 1933, right after Hitler first took power. They were great big spectacles, and they sort of helped solidify the Nazi toehold and power, you know, power over the German regime. But the bonfires got them very bad press. People were uh, were just outraged. It's, it's such it's such a barbarity. Uh, people were, you know, there was a blacklist, a list of authors of, of prohibited works, just like had, you know, the church and other institutions had had in centuries past. And some authors were complaining of being whitelisted, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of not having earned a place on the blacklist. <laughs> I see. Uh, uh, and uh, one of the things they learned is that books don't burn very well. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's, it just physically, it's hard for them to catch on fire. They they burn more like logs than like kindling. Yeah, they're too compact, course, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so there were people a- after the after these book burnings who would go back out in, into. To back out to the places where the fires had taken place and find their books and take them back home with only minimal damage. Hmm. And also, you know, the Nazis learned that in the age of printing, if you want to destroy a book, it's very hard to do so because whenever you burn one copy, there are others that are safely uh, ensconced on a bookshelf somewhere. The bonfires also got them very bad press. 
or I said that they got it got some very bad press. The Olympics were coming up. They were beginning to prepare for the Olympics, and they knew that if they wanted to put a good face on themselves when they stood on the world stage during the 1936 Olympics, they wouldn't be able to be engaging in such in such barbaric practices. Right. Uh, at the same time, there was a class of Nazi officers, and this this also surprised me. There there was a group of Nazi officers who were very knowledgeable in Jewish studies. There were uh, there were a couple who had studied at Hebrew University, studied Judaica at Hebrew University. Some of them knew Hebrew. Hmm. There in this was a time when the Nazi regime was trying to establish. Um, it was trying to establish itself as an enlightened and advanced culture. And what better way would there be to establish their scholarly cred than to collect a library of Jewish books? Ostensibly, the books that they were collecting were supposed to be uh, for the, the libraries of a series of institutes for Jewish research that they were going to open after the war. Obviously, it was much more than that because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Talmuds alone that were looted, not to mention other books, right. tra trashing novels and school books. So they were trying to establish some scholarly credibility as well. There were some other factors, too, within the Nazi regime that led them to do this. Um, the uh, you know, Hitler was a, a notoriously bad administrator. I mean, he didn't like to get himself involved in the internecine conflicts between his his underlings, and so and he was also not really involved in in, in the day to day operations of the regime, probably like he should have been if he wanted it to succeed. And so, in that chaos, all of his underlings were trying to outdo one another in order to get his attention. And, and there were several organizations within the Nazi regime that were looting books, and they were each led by officials who were trying to get into Hitler's good graces right. by outdoing the others. So this is probably a good uh, time to introduce the villain of the story, actually a story that abounds in villains, but the, but the, uh, the most prominent of all, and that's Alfred Rosenberg. Yes. Now, you know, I, I certainly knew about Rosenberg, but I always knew of him as the theorist of the Nazis' so-called you know, racial science. But you right. write that he's also, quote, history's greatest pillager of printed words. Can you tell us about him? Yes. We have here a Nazi, a high-ranking Nazi named Rosenberg. That in itself is perhaps a secret to his story. He was a uh, uh, he was something of a scholar, although he, you know his main book, um, which is called the Myth of the Twentieth Century in English, uh, affectionately known as the Mythos uh, from its German title, right, right. was this long, incomprehensible tome, this 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 long book, this treatise on. The, uh, the superiority of the German race and the, the inferiority of the Bolsheviks and the Jews and all kinds of other minority groups. And it, it was kind of like uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. It looked great on the shelf, but frankly, one of the un unspoken secrets is that very few people actually understood what it was all about, including Hitler himself. Well, well Hitler, he was, Hitler wrote his own incomprehensible book, so... Right, exactly, exactly. And the mythos was the second bestseller in Germany, only to Mein Kampf. Fascinating! So, wow. Uh, wow. And, and so he w he was was this uh, um, he was a fail 
skilled architect who was trying to find his way, and he fell in with Hitler. He the highlight of one, or at least one of the great highlights of his life was that he one day got to go uh, furniture shopping with Adolf Hitler, and that was he was just so proud of that. And he was a uh, high-ranking Nazi official, but not quite in Hitler's inner circle. So he too was trying to get himself into the Fuhrer's good graces. And he discovered that one way he could do this was by using his scholarly credentials to uh, to create this Institute for Jewish Research, the series of, of institutes that would open after the war, and to collect books that would ostensibly become part of the library of that institution. And he set off on his work. Uh, and he 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 became the leader of a group called the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg. You need to become an expert in multisyllabic German titles in this work. Yes. Uh, the the um, uh, the uh, the Rosenberg Task Force that yes. was assigned the task of going in to conquer Jewish towns and emptying them of Jewish books. Hmm. You know, I've I've read a fair amount about the Holocaust, but but apart from the you know the story of how Jewish books were, were partially saved in Vilna. Apart from that one story, I knew virtually nothing about the Nazis' efforts to loot and preserve Jewish books all across Europe. What sources did you consult? How did you put this whole story together? Well, you know, there has been recently the beginnings of a, a body of scholarly material about this material. There's a woman named Patricia Kennedy Grimstead at Harvard who has been doing a lot of work in in this area, and she has been doing enormous um, an enormous amount of work uh, on behalf of the post-war restitution efforts, not only the artwork, but but particularly of the books and the manuscripts. There's a woman named um, uh, named Dana Herman, who's now at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, who did a lot of work on Jewish cultural reconstruction. So I think that that in recent years, when we have had an, uh, a growing interest in the looted treasures you know most of the previous interest has been in the artworks that have been that the nazis looted during the war but as that's been broadening into a, a a wider interest in the cultural treasures that the nazis have looted it's led to the um the creation of a growing body of scholarly literature that is uh, developing about this topic and i was able to turn to that dolf shidorsky from israel has also done a lot of work in this and several other scholars i see so I want to get, you know, offer our, our listeners a sense of the kind of books and the kind of materials that were, that the Nazis were collecting. Obviously, this, you know, runs the whole gamut of, of, of Jewish literature. Maybe you can give us a little feel for that. And, and I'm going to um, suggest you tell us one particular story, and that has to deal with, with uh, Solomon Schechter and the Cairo Geniza. And uh, a story you tell about a particular uh, part of a particular manuscript, the Van Sera manuscript, and how those pages ended up in, in Nazi hands. Well, uh, Salman Schechter uh, is famous in the United States for be having been one of the founding fathers of the conservative movement here in the United States. But before that chapter in his life, he was a faculty member. As a matter of fact, he was the only Jewish faculty member at Cambridge University. Oh. I wrote extensively about him in my first book, actually, about the Kleroganisa. Right. Um, and he one day ran into a friend of his in downtown Cam Cambridge who mentioned that she had just gone to the Middle East and had some manuscripts that she wasn't able to identify that she had purchased there. And Schechter uh, that afternoon, or late that morning, actually went to her house and identified one of the manuscripts as 
a page of the original Hebrew of the Book of Ben Sira. Mm-hmm. People had known of the Book of Ben Sira for centuries because it was in the Catholic Bible, but the version that was in the Catholic Bible came from the later Greek uh, translation of the Book of Ben Sira. Nobody had seen the original Hebrew, or nobody had reported seeing it at least, mm-hmm. since uh, Sadia Gaon, the prominent uh, uh, a Babylonian sage who had died in 952. Hmm. They knew the Hebrew existed, but nobody had actually actually seen a copy of it. And there, sitting around the dining room table of these friends of his, Schechter identified one of these manuscripts as being the original Hebrew of the book of Ben Sira. So some of the other manuscripts in that, um, in that group of, of manuscripts that his friends had brought to him were labeled as having come from Fustat, the oldest part of Cairo. And he had heard that there was a uh, sizable Geniza, a, a repository for damaged and destroyed Jewish manuscripts that was, in, uh, that was in Cairo. He hadn't paid much attention to it before. Now he starts paying attention. And Schechter traveled to Cairo and found in this attic above the Ben Ezra synagogue in, in this ancient city, he found in this dark attic a pile of what turned out to be upwards of 300,000 ancient and medieval manuscripts. Hmm. Uh, some of them had already gotten out onto the market, and, and he, he took 190,000 of them or so back to Cambridge University for further study, but there were many others that were obtained by many other scholars, and they had gotten into the hands of collectors all over Europe, and many of those were among the manuscripts that were looted during the wars. And so in that huge uh, corpus of manuscripts were several other pages from Ben Sira, and the Nazis had uh, had gotten their hands on them, and they were among the looted material that they had taken during their rampage through Europe. Hmm. You know, you write about these teams of looters, as you describe them, among the German forces. Yet, yet of course, most Jewish books were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Yiddish, uh, all of which are written in the Hebrew alphabet, and sometimes in Rashi script. Did they have? Did these? Troops have any idea what they were finding? Would they have known if they picked up a page of Ben Sira that this is one of the great bibliographic treasures of the Jewish people? Overwhelmingly, no. There were a few, as I said earlier, there were a, a few people who were involved in the uh, in the looting efforts who were um, who who were educated in Jewish studies and who did know Hebrew. Right. The, the notion of Nazi Hebrew scholars to me is just a baffling one. But, you know, perhaps one of the greatest stories of this is the story of the Sarajevo Haggadah. Right. The Sarajevo Haggadah was in, it was, was in the Bosnian National Museum in Sarajevo, and it was this beautiful, illuminated 13th century Haggadah, which originally is from Spain. And when the Nazis took Sarajevo over, one of the people who was in charge of this looting effort, one of the Nazi soldiers, went to the museum and, through a translator, asked the head of the museum for the Sarajevo Haggadah. And the head, because he knew, and he knew the Hebrew, he knew that this was an important document. He was acquainted with it. He knew that this was, would be a priceless new addition to the Nazi libraries. The, through the translator, the uh, head of the library said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't have the Haggadah. I, I, I gave it to one of your colleagues who came this morning. It's not in the museum at all. And the man said, it, it's, it's gone? You don't have it at all? It's, it, through the translator, he said, no, sir, it's, it's, uh, I, gave, I gave it to this other guy. And so this Nazi soldier walked out of the, the museum in Sarajevo, not realizing that throughout that entire conversation, the priceless 
Sarajevo Haggadah had been sitting safely in the translator's pants. Um, wow. And wow. fortunately, he wasn't able to get it. That, tra- that translator, a man named Dervish Korkut, not only saved the Sarajevo Haggadah and other Jewish manuscripts, he was a Muslim scholar, but he went on to heroically save the lives of some Jewish people during the war as well. Well, there's certainly a theme of heroism and resistance that, that runs through your book, and I want to talk about that in a second. But first, I, I just want to ask you, why were the Nazis intent to, to recover so many copies? You, you referred to the, all the sets of Talmud, for example, that they saved. What did they want with all of this? It's one thing to understand how they would establish a single library, but why these vast numbers of duplicate copies of the same more or less everyday books? Aaron, it was an orgy of looting. They were just taking whatever they could. Again, they didn't know, you know, for the most part, the uh, the foot soldiers in the looting efforts didn't know what they were taking. But different Nazi officials would be able to go to Hitler and say, I have acquired three million Jewish books for the, you know, for the, the Reich's cause or whatever the numbers were. They would take whatever they wanted. Not only did they take thousands of Talmuds and Bibles, as I said, but they would take children's activity books. They would take trashy novels. They would take whatever they could possibly get their hands on. And it was part of it, I think, was also, which I, I hadn't mentioned earlier, it was a sense of triumphalism. We now hold in our hands, the Nazis could say, the, the, the or they were hoping to say, the entire literary corpus of Jewish Europe. Hmm. So you explained that the situation in Eastern Europe, which of course was home to the vast majority of Europe's Jews, was very different from that in the West, from Holland and France and other countries. In, In what way was it different? Remember, the Nazis found themselves in Holland and France earlier in the war than the time that they made their way through places like Poland and Lithuania and the right, Ukraine. Right. And the Jewish communities in those places tended to be far better off socioeconomically than the, um, the Jews were in, in the, in the Stettlach of Eastern Europe. So in Western Europe, they tended to uh, take over, first and foremost, community libraries. You know, the Frankfurt Library had a huge collection of books that had originally come from the Rothschild family. They would would also uh, target wealthy individual Jews who, you know, they would go to their palaces, the, you know, these beautiful, gorgeous palaces in the French countryside or, or these, these, um, these large collections in Germany as well that belonged to wealthy Jews, and they would take those books. That, that was early in the war when the looting project was far more targeted and not this huge orgy, as I said, of looting that, that developed later. Later in the war, when they would go through Eastern Europe, the Nazis would go into a town and, you know, empty it of Jews, take them off for immediate execution or to the death camps. And then the uh, the Rosenberg's guys or somebody from one of the other looting organizations would come into these empty Jewish communities, would go into the synagogues, would would go into the local base midrash, would go sometimes into the homes, but rarely into the homes. And they would take the material from from the community libraries and from the synagogues in let's say Midrash. So it was uh you know, the the looting in the West was from these large national and, and libraries and wealthy individuals. In the East it was from it was on a far more small scale in its individual attacks, but of course far more broadly based. Right, which leads you to observe that, you know, that by this point there is a, ma- this is quoting you, a massive and rapidly growing mountain of literary material. 
Uh, you know, as someone who has firsthand experience with what it means to move and store mountains of Jewish books, I understand what a gigantic, just logistical challenge all that is. What did they actually do with the books, particularly in a time of war? Well, they basically stored them wherever they could. They stored them in castles and in monasteries and sometimes in mine shafts and in places like that. It became a problem as the war progressed and the, the Nazi-held territory was beginning to shrink. So they, you know, uh, uh, eventually there were a few small centers that became these huge repositories of Jewish books that had been sent from Nazi lands all over. One of the main ones was in in Hungen, a small town in Germany, where they, you know, originally a large number of books had been stored in Frankfurt. Frankfurt then became too hot of a place. There were bombings and other attacks, so they moved them out into the countryside. Millions and millions of books were stored in the palace and in other towns in Hungen. There was also a city in Poland called Radibor, which which also we became almost a city of looted Jewish books. They they hmm. stored them wherever they could safely safely store them. Hmm. Well, I, I want to talk a bit about resistance. You know, I mean, uh, I, I know David Fishman, a, a scholar at JTS, brilliantly described, uh, he wrote a book called Embers Plucked from the Fire, The Rescue of Jewish right. Cultural Treasures in Vilna, which I know is a source in, in, in your book. And uh, he described, you know, these Jews who just showed extraordinary courage, literally risked their lives in rescuing and hiding Jewish books, often right under the Nazis' noses. Can you tell us something about that, and in particular what happened in, in Vilna, the Yerushalayim Delita, the, the great center of Jewish scholarship in Eastern Europe, and what became of its really extraordinary libraries, particularly the Yivo and the Strasburg Library? Right. So... As you said, Vilna was a cultural hub for the entire region in which it sat in Lithuania. And when the Nazis took over that er that area, they sent all the books to uh, Vilna for storage. And the books ended up in what had been the Yivo Library, the uh, mm -hmm. Jewish Scientific Institute, that uh, before the war had been such a, such an important center of Jewish studies throughout Eastern Europe. The right. books were sent there, and the Nazis in charge conscripted a group of Jewish literati, literati of Jewish historians and writers of all kinds, to help go through these millions of books that had been looted from this, this highly literate Jewish region and identify the 20% of them that, that were the most valuable. The other 80% would be sent to the pulp mill, and by this time they realized that they couldn't hold on to all of them, so they just wanted to hold on to the 20% of, of, uh, that were the most valuable. Right. A, a, a couple of the scholars, uh, well, all the scholars, we really, they couldn't stomach turning these treasures over to the Nazis. And so several of them began what ended up being known as the Paper Brigade. And what they would do is they would stash some of the most valuable books and other material in their clothing, and they would uh, uh, secret them back into the uh, ghetto at the end of the day. So here, because the, the evil library was located outside the Vilna ghetto, so they would take this material back into the Vilna ghetto because they knew that it would be mm. safer there than it would be in the evil library, which was outside the ghetto. You had this great irony of this brigade of, of, uh, of, sco of scholars smuggling these books into the ghetto for safekeeping. And there they stored them, again, wherever they could. They, there were some dugout 
caverns beneath some of the homes. There were other places where, 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 where they stashed these books for safekeeping. Eventually, they realized that this was just, it was just going far too slowly, that there were far more books that needed saving than they could, uh, uh, than they could manage to bring back into the ghetto at the end of the day. So they worked out a system where every day at lunchtime, one of the scholars who was working in the in the evil library would distract the guard by tutoring him in math. The guard had wanted to learn math, and while the guard was distracted, they would go up. They would go up above the seat, the ceiling in the evil library and behind the in on top of the rafters, and they would hide the books there. And they were able to hide thousands of books there. And sadly, the home of the evil library at the end of the war was bombed and, and only few of them survived one of the leaders well yeah. the two leaders of that effort two of the most important leaders were Avraham Sutskever the famous poet who died just a few years ago actually and, Sh- and, and Shmerka Kazerjinsky who who died of a, of a plane crash uh, several decades ago yes right survived the war and then died in a plane crash in Argentina right. uh, well, that's an extraordinary story. Of course, Sutzker was one of the greatest of the Yiddish poets, and yet here was an, a completely different role that he played, not only as a leader in the, res, in the armed resistance, but also as a leader of this effort to preserve the written words of the Jewish people. It's, it's um, sort of ready for novelization or ready to be a major motion picture. It's just one of the great stories of Jewish history, I think. Absolutely, and he wrote a poem, actually, that uh, I, the title of which I had used as the original title of my book. It, it, it got changed in the final editing process, but the title of the poem was called Burnt Pearls, in which he uses the image of burnt pearls to, uh, as a metaphor for the Jewish written word. The Jewish written word, he said, are like the burnt pearls and the charred remains of a woman's body. Mm-hmm. You know, all that we have left to the beauty of this woman are these pearls, and they're burnt, mm-hmm. of course, but they're all that remain. And he saw those, he saw the book's of Jewish Europe in a similar vein. These are the burnt pearls of, of European Jewish civilization. Well, you, you just gave me goosebumps, so yes, I understand. Uh, you know, many of our listeners, as we referred to before, have seen the film Monuments Men, which came out just a few right. years ago, I guess. Is that right? A year or two ago, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that tells a story how, you know, obviously in June 44, when Allied troops invaded France, uh, almost immediately afterwards, these special troops were assigned to begin recovering initially looted artwork. uh, And they found vast troves, both of art and uh, and of gold, in abandoned salt mines. But then on April, to fast forward, on April 16, 1945, the New York Times ran a remarkable headline that said, Priceless Treasures Hidden by Rosenberg Found in Old German Castle. What does that headline refer to? Well, that, that is the, uh, this is actually an amazing story. This is the, um, uh, these were the books that were found in the Hungen Palace that I mentioned earlier. Sure. In, in, there was a, um, there was a, Jew, there was a Jewish soldier, a man actually born in, in Vienna, Robert Schoenberg was his name. He was born in in Vienna. He became an attorney, but he had to to flee. And he had, uh, early in the years of the war, he was working as a, a uh, he was working in his father's electronic supply store. Hmm. He, when he left Europe, he swore he wouldn't ever be back there. And he was here in the United States. And when the army learned that he spoke 
something like six lang- languages. The next thing he knew, he was on a boat back to Europe. Schoenberg was assigned um, uh, to lead a detail of soldiers after the war, just as the war was ending, to a castle in this little town in Germany, Hungen, because there were sub- supposedly some books in the castle. He went up to this castle. He, this was an old medieval ca- castle. He knocked on the door of the castle, and uh, the door opened, uh, and the door was answered by Alfred the butler. It turns out that there were only two old men who lived in this castle. The castle was owned by a princess of whom it was discovered that she, was, uh, she had been helping Jews during the war, so she had to flee. Her octogenarian husband, a man named James Pitcairn Knowles, a Scottish portrait painter, was living in the castle along with the octogenarian butler, a man named, named Al- Alfred Theisinger. Uh, uh, Alfred Theisinger, Alfred the butler, had long been in the service industry, and as a matter of fact, 32 years earlier, or 33 years earlier, he um, had been a young, uh, a young man who was a steward on the Titanic. He was the guy who knocked on the doors of the Astors and some of the, of the other aristocrats on the Titanic saying, you need to get up onto the deck now. But by this time, he was an old man. He was, the, he was living alone in this palace with, uh, with, with, the, with this other old man. They would have teas in the courtyard with some of their friends as the war was, was raging around them. It was almost a Fellini-esque type of existence. Schoenberg walks into this palace, and his, he and the soldiers were just amazed immediately. The walls from floor to ceiling were lined with books, books that had been looted from all over Europe. Uh, everywhere they went, it was almost filled with books. And Alfred uh, Theisinger said, you know what, you, you may want to see what's in the basement. And he took out a skeleton key and let the soldiers into the basement, and there were some priceless Jewish books from some of the wealthiest collectors of Judaica throughout Europe. And then Alfred took them over to one particular cabinet and took out a, a second skeleton key and opened it up. And there was uh, the remains of the Rothschild collection uh, in Cunabula, some of the earliest printed books, some of uh, some rare and priceless manuscripts, and many, of, m- many other great priceless treasures. And it was all right in the uh, in the basement of this castle. Extraordinary. Uh, You describe how the Americans eventually set up a book processing center, uh, and and it was done in a former IG Farben industrial complex. You say that there were more than a million books there. Now, it wasn't quite clear to me, though, were they actually housed in the same building where Farben had manufactured Cyclone Bay, the, the, uh, the gas that was used in the death chambers? Right. We're not sure exactly what, what the, the uh, warehouse was used for. We know that IG Farben was one of the manufacturers of Zyklon B gas, the, the, as you said, the gas that was used in the gas cham- chambers. Probably uh, uh, Farben manufactured at least some of the components for that gas. We're not sure whether it was actually in that warehouse or any of the many others around uh, that they had around the country, but there is an irony that that the, the where that a warehouse belonging to this company that had been part of this Nazi killing machine was later used to house these sacred these sacred and and uh, and, um, and priceless Jewish books. Right. Well, in some ways, at the point when the war ends, your story is still just beginning, and then you describe at length the process of 
I guess what we can call bibliographic repatriation, or I think you phrase it, the battle of the books. And you refer to three great scholars who led the effort and competed with one another, Cecil Roth from England, Judah Magnus, who was then at the Hebrew University and pre-state Israel, and Selah Barone at uh, Columbia University at the time. Right. C- can you describe what happened and what they were arguing about? Yeah, well, you know, when, when the smoke lifted at the end of the war, the Jewish, the, the worldwide Jewish landscape was, of course, a very different one than it had been before the war. And the Jewish people around the world, not to mention non-Jews, were trying to get used to this new Jewish land, landscape. What, you know, the center of Jewish uh, culture and uh, the center of Jewish scholarly um, work for centuries had been in, in, in Europe. And now European Jewry, particularly Eastern European Jewry, had been decimated, and the two new centers, cultural centers of Jewish life were in the United States and in Israel. Right. So, so after the war, what happened is the United States Army got the lion's share of the books, and they were stored in this former I.G. Farben plant or warehouse outside of Frankfurt. And quickly, the question of what would happen with the unidentifiable books became a very political one. The people in Israel, or in what would soon become Israel, um, led by Judah Magnus, who was the Chancellor of Hebrew University, said, well, we're the new, we're the capital of the Jewish people worldwide. Certainly the books should come here and go to Hebrew University. The, um, uh, the, um, the American government, uh, the Library of Congress, as well as certain American Jewish historians, were saying originally the United States is now the, has the largest Jewish population in the world. Certainly the books should come here. Uh, Cecil Roth was arguing for them to come to England as well, where they could be housed in some of the finest libraries in the world. The survivors were also saying, you know what, the books, the books should stay at home. And the poor American army was caught uh, in the crossfire between these groups of, of bickering Jews. Yes. Uh, so what ended up happening is that eventually, because of, there was a lot of political wheeling and dealing, but eventually Salo Barone's voice ended up as the predominant one, and he gained a more international perspective, and he headed a team of an international team of Jewish scholars from the United States, from England and other places in Europe, from Israel, that was assigned, that took on the job of figuring out what to do with these Jewish books. And that was uh, the organization called Jewish Cultural Reconstruction, which we discussed earlier. I see. And, and what role does Hannah Arendt, of all people, end up playing in all of this? Well, Hannah Arendt, the very controversial uh, political philosopher, uh, was the on-the-ground director of the efforts of Jewish cultural reconstruction. She spent a few years in Germany helping to figure out what to do with these books. This, is, this too, was a surprise to me. That, uh, this was a, a huge part of Hannah Arendt's life, and she played a huge role in, in the restitution of Jewish books after the war. And very few people know about this, even in her... Uh, in in the most well known biography of of, of her, this uh, the her the mention of her work with JCR barely merits a blip on those pages. But she spent a couple of years working on this. She of course was from Germany. Um, she was married actually to a man named uh, Hans Blucher, which as I mentioned in the 
book to the delight of Mel Brooks fans everywhere would make Hannah Arendt into Frau Blucher. Um, and, uh, but, but she worked indefatigably uh, in the efforts to, uh, to either restitute or uh, the, to either to restitute these Jewish books or to send them to places where they could be most useful hmm. after the war. I once had a professor who said that nobody could have invented Jewish history. It's far too improbable for that. <laughs> and, and, uh, this just proves the point, I think. So, so, Mark, how many books were looted altogether? And then a second question, how many were eventually recovered and repatriated? Uh, the, the answer to your first question is easy. We don't know. Okay. Um, the, uh, the best estimate, the closest estimate that we can get is tens of millions. Many of the books um, ended up in the, what you know we now call the former Soviet Union after the war, and sa- sadly those collections sort of melted away into uh, libraries all over the Soviet Union. Um, Patricia Kennedy Crimston and others are working now on, on identifying some of those, and in in the case of where it's appropriate to restore them at least to the um, to the descendants of the people to whom they orig- originally belonged, or at least to identify them as collections that had been looted during the war. And uh, several, and again, several mil- million of them were uh, looted, were recovered after the war and either restituted to their original owners or, or sent to Jewish libraries around the world. Right. So, Mark, you write in the book, you say, this is again a quote, some books remain in Europe, hidden in back rooms, moldering in basements, resolutely shelved in the stacks of national libraries in the Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, some of the books will surely remain in government collections, others will be transferred to Jewish libraries, and perhaps even to individual survivors or their families, and still others will remain hidden indefinitely. Do you think there are treasures that are likely to resurface yet in, in the years to come? Oh, yes, certainly. There, you know, there, there was so much material taken. And as Eastern Europe develops and becomes more open and, becomes, uh, and, and enters more fully into the, the free marketplace of ideas, the, there will certainly be collections that will surface. There were so many of them in, in Lithuania, in Estonia, in Russia, and in so many other places that there are bound to be new ones that surface. I mean, th- there are books that are surfacing, that have surfaced in recent years. You know, it, it, Brooks have, have been surfacing at a slow but steady pace in re- recent years. There's no reason to believe that they won't continue to do so. Hmm. I have one last question, but in some ways it might be one of the harder to answer, and that is, why has it taken so long for such an important story to be told? I think it's because we're talking about books here. And, you know, everybody knows, or a lot of people know, the story of the the looted artwork. And the story of the looted artwork is, of course, a fascinating and very important story. And it, it draws a lot more attention. It draws far more attention. It tends to draw far more attention than the uh, pillage of, uh, you know, collections of old no- novels and thousands of copies of the Talmud and children's books and all these other things. You're comparing here the, you know, the, uh, the theft, for example, of these priceless um, 
The Price of Paintings by Gustav Klimt. And there's a movie coming out about one of them soon. Mm. It, it may may already be out by the time this podcast airs. And uh, other, you know, priceless, beautiful Jewish literature to books. And people don't tend not to pay as much attention to books. The, the, the story of the books is certainly a very different story than the story of the artwork. And just now... As we're working our way through that story of the artwork, the books, too, are beginning to draw their fair share of attention. Well, I think it's an extraordinary chapter of Jewish history, and it's a story that's remarkably well told. And I say, Yasha Koyach, I thank you for doing all that. Oh, well, thank you, Aaron. If people, want to, if people want to read your book, uh, when and, and where will they be able to find it? Well, it's coming out. It, it, it's, it's scheduled to come out at the end of the year, published by the Jewish Publication Society, and you can get it. Uh, either directly from JPS or from any other book retailer. Uh, and there will almost certainly be an audio version that will come out as well. So it should be widely available. And we'll make sure it's available here at the Yiddish Book Center as well. Thank Terrific. you, Thank you, Rabbi Mark Lickman, author of Stolen Words, The Nazi Plunder of Jewish Books. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, tune in to our website, www.yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymish Starkengesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.